Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Paul Rouse OP, who was then Brother Paul Rouse OP, on the topic, Should the Church Challenge Caesar? This November 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Dominic Murphy mentioned that he had spoken to you a little while ago and was pleased that, uh, that I was able to contribute something to your weekly forums as well. The month of June this year was an exciting time for the Catholic Church and the state of New South Wales. Not only did one of the most extraordinary pieces of legislation ever before the Houses of Parliament in this state pass, but we also had the Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, George Cardinal Pell, accused of contempt of Parliament for his public comments against it. The legislation was the Human Cloning and Other Prohibited Practices Amendment Bill of 2007. And this provides a legal framework for the use of embryonic stem cells obtained from embryos especially created for research. The charge against the Cardinal went that he had used intimidation and threatened members of Parliament in informing Catholic politicians of the Church's position on the defence of human life with respect to the Bill. He had reminded Catholic parliamentarians of their obligation to examine their consciences before presenting themselves for Holy Communion and repeated Pope Benedict's statement that killing an innocent child is incompatible with going to Holy Communion. The Cardinal said, and I quote, Certainly every Catholic politician who voted for this bill should think twice and examine his or her conscience before next receiving communion. The investigation of the Cardinal's statement by the Privileges Committee of the Legislative Council of the Upper House provided and led to many excellent opportunities for politicians and the public to be more familiar with the Catholic position concerning the then proposed legislation. Catholic teaching on the sacredness of human life, especially embryonic life, was on the public record from the Cardinal's mouth in every major newspaper and news website in New South Wales and some others elsewhere, on ABC and commercial radio and television, in the Catholic Weekly, and with sincere thanks to Father Frank Brennan, even in the Street. While we must say that the principle that human life is precious from natural conception to natural death ought to be self-evident to all, in a society such as ours, where others would describe, sorry, which others would describe as post-Christian, it is a joy for the Christian ear to hear the good news in the public media. When the Cardinal was cleared of the charge of contempt of Parliament by the Privileges Committee, he released a statement which said in part, and I quote him again, This is welcome news, no surprise, and a win for religious freedom. Christians in Australia have long played an important part in ensuring that fundamental human rights are respected. My contribution to the public discussion on human cloning was made in this spirit and tradition. To prevent religious leaders from publicly stating their claims to truth would stifle religious freedom and hamper open debate on matters of public interest. This would not be the Australian way. 
despite the, the changes in topic. The first few words of the Cardinal's statement, this is welcome news, I've taken as a kind of focus line for my own talk, in which I intend to set out a little of the history of the concept of the separation of church and state, with particular reference to Australia, and also discuss the church's involvement in the public forum. In so doing, I'll propose to you three reasons why the church does and must speak out on various issues, including embryonic stem cell research. In an interview with the Cardinal on ABC radio program The Sunday Point File, which was aired on the 17th of June this year, shortly after the charge of contempt of Parliament was brought against the Cardinal, the interviewer, Monica Attard, opened with a question as to whether the Cardinal thought he was out of touch with ordinary Australians. Ms Attard mentioned a Morgan poll, reliable as they are, in which 80% of respondents said they supported embryonic stem cell research. She concluded with an accusing question as to whether he thought he'd actually stacked the odds against uh, the bill's uh, suppression and by speaking out against it, had in fact, in fact made it possible for it to pass. The interviewer concluded and included the best of the ABC's attempts at unbiased reporting. During the interview, Ms. Attard made a passing reference to section 118, sorry, 116 of the Australian Constitution. Her inference in doing so was clear. The Cardinal and religious figures in general ought not to speak in the public forum especially, say, in this case, on the issue of embryonic stem cell research, because according to her reading, or that reading of the Constitution, there is no allowance for the Church in the life of the state. It's well established in studies of the Australian Constitution and the history thereof that we are dependent on two political systems for our own. They are the British Westminster system of Parliament and the American executive system of government. Occasionally dubbed Washminster, the Australian system is a drawing together of the features of both best suited to our own conditions as a federation of colonies. One particular issue, sorry, feature of the American Constitution which has made it into the Australian is the so-called separation of church and state. Unlike the United Kingdom, for example, where the Church of England is the established church and is the religion of the monarch, the Australian Constitution, in line with the American, specifically rules out an established religion for this country. It is this inclusion in the Australian Constitution which I would like to address tonight, just for a moment, before proceeding to discuss the life of the Church in the state. A letter from the then newly elected US President Thomas Jefferson in reply to the letter of the Danbury Baptists on New Year's Day 1802 is often referred to as, as contributing a particular shape to the concept of the separation of church and state. Jefferson wrote in part, and I quote, Religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. He owes account to none other for his faith and worship. The legitimate powers of government reach actions only, and not opinions, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. This letter needs to be read very carefully by modern eyes. At first glance, many would propose that Jefferson believes in the exclusion of the church from the life of the state. 
a so-called separation. In fact, Jefferson does not advocate the church's butting out of state affairs, as it were. This would be to misunderstand Jefferson's thinking. Rather, he presents the concept of a restriction on the state's power to legislate on the affairs of institutionalized religion, that is, the church and the corresponding obligations of their members. His argument for this runs that the practice of religion is a matter between an individual human person and God, and so it is not for the state to regulate the contribution a particular denomination and its members may or may not make to the life of the state by being established. Jefferson favours a state which does not establish a religion as its own. He did not make mention of a relationship otherwise between religious people and their involvement in the state. In the state. But we may even go back a little further in considering the origins of the concept of the separation of church and state and consider the actual letter of the Danbury Baptist to Jefferson in 1801. It's easily seen in the Danbury Baptist letter, Jefferson's Catalyst, that they were really concerned with religious liberty and not the demarcation of the church's political boundary. Let me read to you a little of what they wrote to Jefferson. Our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty. That religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals. That no man ought to suffer in name, person or effects on account of his religious opinions. That legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his name. These Baptists were anxious to inform the new US president of their concerns because they were concerned that their privileges as an institute of religion were in jeopardy in the state of Connecticut. On account of their perceiving of an ambiguity in the Connecticut Constitution over the rights of churches, they effectively appealed to the President for his opinion as President of the United States, which would carry some weight in the public forum. Jefferson's point still stands in the United States, as it would in Australia. The state has no power under the Constitution to establish a particular religion or denomination thereof as its own to the, to the exclusion of others. So we must recognise at this point that the term separation of church and state enters the common parlance under the heading of religious liberty. This section, sorry, this concept of the separation of church and state has made its way into the Australian Constitution, as I said, as section 116, to which Ms. Attard referred, and it reads, The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion, or for imposing any religious observance, or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion, and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. And so the Cardinal was right to remind Ms. Attard's listeners that this section 116 of the Australian Constitution forbids the establishment of the state religion and not necessarily prohibits the Church's involvement in the life of the state. But with this correction, we also need to be aware of the sentiments in Ms. Attard's statement the Church ought not to be involved in the public forum of the state. You're no doubt aware that there are many Australians who would hold her view. 
Lee's opined that the Church has nothing to say to Australia because the two institutions, the Church and the Commonwealth, are founded on different principles, different values, as it were. So we ought to be very sure as to why the Church must speak out, because in the present climate and in the mindset of many, we Catholics and Christians are already an irrelevant voice in the public thought. What we have to contribute to public debate is often regarded as biased by our beliefs and is consequently dismissed as musings of well-meaning but clearly misguided people. So we need to be sure of why the Church can, does and must speak up. So I'd like to spend the rest of my time for this talk discussing this very problem. And we do so, we speak up in the public forum for three reasons. First, the Church expresses solidarity with and charity towards the poor and vulnerable, whoever they may be. Second, the Church is always engaged in issues which concern the flourishing of the human person. Third, the Church's statements and exhortations are at the service of the common good of all persons. Among the many great documents which the Second Vatican Council produced, is the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World of 1965. It is perhaps the only document which came out of the Council which is entirely outward in its focus and concern. Other documents, while wonderful for those within the Church, of their very nature are concerned with matters internal, and consequently make no attempt to assure the world that the Church is interested in them. The issues with which the Council was initially concerned include the nature of the Church and her sacred liturgy, divine revelation, and the ministry and training of priests, to name a few. Take, for example, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. In that document, we find some magnificent phrases describing just how important the Eucharist is for the life of the Church. One of these runs, quote, Every liturgical celebration, because it is an act of Christ the priest and of his body, which is the Church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. But this beautiful statement and others we might read about the outstanding nature of the Church's worship of the one true God stops short of expressing the Church's solidarity with the suffering members of Christ's human family. It was not until the year the Council began, 1962, that a number of bishops were having discussions about a response from the Church to the world in which she dwells. One of the catalysts for Gaudium space was Don Helder Camara of the Benedictine Order. He was an auxiliary bishop of Rio de Janeiro at the time, Brazil. Concerned with the excessively internal nature of the Council's deliberations, he asked, are we to spend our whole time discussing internal Church problems while two-thirds of mankind is dying of hunger? What have we to say on the problem of underdevelopment? Will the Council express its concern about the great problems of mankind? His comments, together with the support of a number of other bishops from around the developing world, prompted the Belgian, Leo Cardinal Swenens, to promote a schema around two poles, firstly ad intra, or to the internal, and ad extra, to the external. Various bishops, including the Milanese Cardinal Giovanni Battista Montini, later Pope Paul VI, expressed their support later in the sessions of the Council for a document on the Church and the world. In truth, the pastoral constitution on the Church and the modern world 
is an eloquent attempt by the Council Fathers to speak to the members of the Church, and indeed the whole world, about how she understands herself in relation to the concerns of the human family. At the time of the Council, you can say that there was a growing awareness of human interdependence and concern for the common good as advances in technology, travel and communications brought people and cultures into closer contact. The Council identified the need for a corresponding increase in the understanding of the spiritual dignity of the human person to match these human developments. And I quote, Genuine fraternal dialogue has advanced not so much on the level of modern technical advances as at the deeper level of personal fellowship. And so in the light of these modern advancements, the Council Fathers sought to express in this document on the Church and the modern world an understanding of the human person, his relationship to the Church, and her relationship in turn to the world. The overarching themes in the document concern integral personal dignity and the service to the human family in which the Church is engaged. The Latin title of the Pastoral Constitution, as I said, Guardian and Spades, reveals much of what the rest of the document announces. Quote, the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the men of our time, especially of those who are poor or afflicted in any way, are the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. In these first few words of Gaudium et Spades, there is an, a statement of solidarity by the Council Fathers of the followers of Christ with the entire human family. This is not because the Church on a particular issue moves from a, a position of splendid isolation from the human family to one of solidarity with it, as if they were two separate groups of work in the world. Catholics are human beings, all evidence to the contrary, including Robert Haddad notwithstanding. And it is rather the case, therefore, that the one group, the followers of Christ, is drawn from the other, the human family. And so the followers of Christ share the same joy and hope, grief and anguish as neighbours, if not then brothers and sisters, of the one human family. As for the state, like the church, it is an organisation at work for the common good. We cannot make the mistake of identifying or proposing the identification of the state with the world, or the church with the world, or the church with the state. With Pope Benedict, we must say that the church remains something other than the state. And I quote him, Like the state, the church too must remain in its own proper place and within its own boundaries. It must respect its own being and freedom precisely in order to perform for the state the service that the latter requires. So we need to be subtle in our analysis here and say that the church is part of the human family and is free to express solidarity with the poor, weak and suffering members of humanity in the public forum, which is governed by the state. But this preference for the poor did not begin, of course, with the Second Vatican Council. Some of the footnotes in Gaudium et Spades mentioned the then recent teaching of Pope Blessed John XXIII in Mater et Magistra and Patrum in Terrace. But more than that, a preference for the weak of the community was heralded by our Lord Jesus Christ, heir to a Jewish inheritance. The Lord's Jewish heritage has us understand well the importance of caring for that wandering trio, the stranger, the widow and orphan. 
going yet another step further, even the tiniest primary schooler, hopefully, will be able to tell you the story of the Good Samaritan who cared for the injured man. In all this, we should take note that discipleship of Christ requires us to be concerned for the poor and vulnerable, especially those in close proximity to us, as in our neighbours. In a homily to the priests of the Archdiocese of Sydney shortly after his installation, then Archbishop Pell restated the Council's teaching thus. It would be a bad sign if the Catholic community were so concerned with one another, with our internal issues, that we wanted the world to pass us by undisturbed. The followers of Christ must speak out on issues which concern our brothers and sisters, whether or not they are Catholic. So it's a good thing that the Church released statements asking for prayers and a peaceful end to the crisis in Burma, and expressed opposition to Item 486. Beginning with the poor, with whom our Lord identified so strongly, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are my brothers, you did it to me, and next to those most at risk of becoming poor, Catholics are to make their presence felt. By this I mean in the public sphere, using the popular media and modern means of communication. The Church embraces all these forms of communication as potentially helpful for expressing our position of unity and solidarity with our weaker brothers and sisters. The joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the men of our time, especially of those who are poor or afflicted in any way, are the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. But the Church does not stop at the poor and vulnerable in speaking in the public forum, though it must be said that the human embryos for whom the Cardinal spoke up do fall into that category. The Church seeks to engage with and foster relationships with various professions so that they can contribute good things to society in their turn. So the Cardinal himself often celebrates the annual Red Mass to begin the, the new legal year. In some places there is an annual White Mass for physicians. While I have yet to hear of the somewhat dark green ooze coloured mass for garbage collectors, mm-hmm. I'm sure we could work out something for them. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that shortly after the 2003 assassination of the Apostolic Nuncio to Burundi, that even though the trouble in a particular country makes it nearly impossible for the Pope's representative, the Nuncio, to do his job, the Holy Father leaves his delegate where he is to show that the Church does not abandon the people. The Church contributes and witnesses to the society in which she dwells. And I love the story of how one much-loved Archbishop of Krakow, shortly before his election to the See of Peter, used to gather leading professionals and academics around him over a meal during the communist regime in Poland. Not only did the meals promote fraternity across the fields and professions, but also made certain that the Church was at the table quite literally as an interested party in the discussions in the person of the Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla. As an icon of the local church, the Archbishop was identified as the face and voice of Christ in that place. There he witnessed to the goodness that the church has to offer simply by his presence and dialogue with these high-flying people. In a very public way, among the doctors and teachers, as his Lord did in the temple as a young man, Cardinal Wojtyla participated in the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the men of his time who were suffering under communism. 
When he attended the first session at the Second Vatican Council, Karol Wojtyla was Auxiliary Bishop of Krakow for about four years. At the end of the Council, he was Archbishop, and not long after its close, Pope Paul VI created him a cardinal. He remembered being seated very close to the main doors of St. Peter's when he was but an auxiliary, and moving up the stalls during the course of the Council when he was appointed Archbishop and had gained a little more gravitas. His hand is heavy in guarding its space, and much of Chapter 4 of the Pastoral Constitution, the role of the Church in the modern world, guarding its space 40 to 45, is influenced by him. In Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution of the Church, the Council Fathers taught that in the person of the Bishop, the Lord Jesus Christ is present in the midst of his people. Lumen Gentium 21. Possessing the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders, to the bishop is entrusted the task of care and solicitude for the local church, and he contributes to the welfare of the rest of the body of Christ in that way. He is the minister of truth, he is the minister of the truth, who is ordained for the service of the, of the portion of the body of Christ entrusted to his pastoral care. Our bishops encourage and advise us, teach and exhort us, and give us their example in the following of Christ. So when a bishop speaks in the public forum, it is an exercise of his office as a vicar of Christ, to show forth the interest and concern Christ and his church have in that particular issue or field. It is part of his duty as a Christian and as a, and as a successor of the apostles. And he also seeks to advance the sanctification of the public forum by his presence within it. He is a consecrated person, set aside in the sacrament of holy orders for the spread of the gospel and the spiritual welfare of the people. So we pray for our bishops who enter the public forum on a particular issue, that those they encounter, even Monica Attard, would be moved by Christian charity and seek the truth. In Cardinal Pell's case last June, for example, he was expressing both support for the unborn children who will be killed as a result of the legislation and for those who will be otherwise affected. In Cardinal Vortiva's case around the Krakowian dinner table, he was speaking from the church to every profession. The Catholic Church's teachings are not for her own sake, but for the sake of the flourishing of the human person in this life and their attaining of eternal life by the grace of God in the next. Let me give you an example concerning this life. On the 10th of June this year, the Centre for Social Justice, a think tank of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, delivered a report entitled Breakthrough Britain. The fruit of 18 months of research and consultation, it is a report which investigated how poverty in Britain might be better tackled in the future. For our purposes this evening, I'd like to note just three points it made. First, Breakthrough Britain identified a strong relationship between crime and family breakdown. The report notes that 70% of young offenders were from single-parent families. Second, the public cost to the state of family breakdown is estimated to be in excess of £20 billion sterling per year. Third, children who are not nurtured sufficiently in their first three years can develop mental health problems in the future. Parents who are themselves from broken homes were very often found to struggle with providing this nurture. The 
breakdown of a marriage between a man and a woman is always a sad and distressing event, whatever the circumstances. But what Breakthrough Britain and other similar studies around the world are beginning to show us is that it is more often than not the family which provides the best possible environment for the raising of children, for the flourishing of spouses, and for those children to become productive members of society later in life, and to form more stable relationships with others in the future, especially in marriage. The concept of the family as the foundation and beginning of all human relationships is not a new one, of course, nor is it exclusive to the Conservative Party, nor one that they have engineered for their own purposes. The family, consisting of a heterosexual union and children, is supported and promoted by the Church too. It's good to mention at this point two papal documents which uh, do this eloquently and which ought to be better known in the public forum. They are Humane Vitae, 1968, of Pope Paul VI, and John Paul II's Letter to Families, of 1994. And there are others too, of course. Unfortunately, in the public forum, Humane Vitae is infamous rather than famous, and the Letter to Families is as mysterious as transubstantiation. In both documents, there is mentioned the concern for the advancement of the human family in a way which is ordered to its welfare properly understood. So I make the point here that if the Church is right on the family from a sociological point of view, then it can be argued that the Church could be seen to be right on other issues on the same basis, including embryonic stem cell research and human cloning. On this, pope, uh, sorry, on this point, Pope Benedict has said, Christian faith has proved to be the most universal and rational religious culture. Even today, it offers reason the basic structure of moral insight, which, if it does not actually lead to some kind of evidential quality, at least furnishes the basis of a rational moral faith without which no society can endure. The state, then, is obliged to apply principles for the flourishing of the human person, which are true. The Church presents as her own the principles she has received for the welfare of the whole human family, and she presents these usually through her bishops, but also through others, and I'm thinking here of lay experts, for example. The human person is destined for flourishing, which we know means heaven. But by flourishing must also be meant flourishing in this life, which must be sought after in a political society, which is the state. If the Church's teachings are for the best, then good debate in the public forum must not be with the Church as a teaching institution, as in the case of Cardinal Pell's uh, contempt of Parliament charge, but as a source of a particular sociological position, which is also known by the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This year, the television series Californication was aired on a free-to-air network. The main character, Hank Moody, is a 40-year-old author and father of one daughter, and is regular, regularly in contact, contact with drugs and alcohol. Hank is also promiscuous. The first episode of the show depicted a dream sequence in which he engages in a sex act with a nun in a church. Along with a few journalists and other critics making negative comments about the program, quiet and prayerful demonstrations also occurred. One of those demonstrating not so long ago said, 
The message that is depicted on the show, that women are to be treated as objects of lust and then be discarded, is a really bad message. Of course, that demonstrator is right. Any message which portrays the human person as an object of disordered affection is the wrong one. However, the large majority of responses to the news that there were protests about the show were negative towards the church. Many were outraged that the church was yet again sticking its nose into an area which they perceived was not its concern. Others accused the church of not dealing with the important issues like clerical sexual abuse and the relief of poverty. These others may be forgiven for not being aware of the church's undertakings in both of these areas and many others. So the criticism of the church by these people as missing the issue is neglecting, and neglecting its proper role is simply misplaced. The church speaks and acts in the interest of the common good. In this example, treating all others with the respect which is their due as human persons is not an exclusively Catholic teaching, but rather one which should be evident to all, do unto others. With advancements in the environmental and other sciences, we are much more aware now than ever, sorry, more, now more than we ever have been, of the effect of our actions on each other. Also, also our industrialised society does not run on subsistence but on profit. We produce what we can, uh, so as to produce for our, sorry, so as to provide for our other needs and wants. Whatever the ethics of that particular economic practice, we are interdependent on one another. And so in the public forum, the Church offers as her own the principles she has received from Christ for the good of the societies in which she is present. Her members need the societies in which they live to be truly at the service of the common good, for their own good in turn. And so the Church has a duty to make public the, church, uh, sorry, the truth which sets the human person free. Put simply, we are our brother's keeper, despite the many calls for it to be otherwise from the various canes lurking in the ABC. Mm -hmm. And if it is the task of governments to work towards the common good, which is not the same as the greatest good for the greatest number, then governments will be assisted by the Church, who knows the truth taught her by Jesus Christ, to protect the poor and vulnerable and promote the integral human development of every person. In this talk I've been referring to Guardian in Space. This document has much to offer our reflection tonight on the Church and the Public Forum, and I'm unable to do it full justice. The Council Fathers noted that the service to the human family which the Church provides, quote, the Church for her part, contributes towards the spread of justice and charity among nations, and within the borders of the nations themselves. The Council Fathers were saying that the mysteries which the human family encounters in its advancements in every field are best worked out in dialogue with the Church because she comprehends the mystery of the human person in the light of natural reason and of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. The Church communicates her teachings, which she has received from the Lord, as a service to the society in which she dwells. It is possible then to speak of the Church's duty to this society in, its, in this context. In the first Christian centuries, an argument for the Roman persecu persecution of Christians was that they are a subversive influence on human society and culture. 
They apparently did not share the same values as the rest of the prophets. The early Christians seemed to dwell here, but their home lay elsewhere, which I would say is a compliment. But nonetheless, the criticism of Christianity was that its adherents do not make good citizens. The same argument against Christianity still lurks in Australian parliaments, as the Cardinal's contempt of Parliament charge demonstrates. But good citizenship, that is being a responsible member of the general public, requires virtue on the part of the individual. The best citizens are those who act out of concern for others, especially the poor and vulnerable, as well as for themselves. The better politicians are those who look also to the welfare of others, of those who will be affected by the decisions they make. So Tony Abbott's pre-election comments about how the church should be encouraging virtue among her members rather than sticking her nose into politics is an unfortunate go-nowhere statement. The church encourages virtue in her members so that they will be faithful Christians who are, by their fidelity, good citizens too. The kingdom is not very far from you, Mr. Abbott. Indeed, it is in your midst. When the common good is at stake and the dignity of the human person is called into question, the Church offers the teachings she has received for the good of the rest of society. To conclude, I've outlined three reasons for the Church's speaking out in the public forum. First, the followers of Christ who comprise the Church are part of the human family. The Church takes an interest in every field and aspect of human life because these are the interests of the entire population. When the Church dialogues with the world in public, this is so the weak and vulnerable members of the human family have an advocate in solidarity about whom they are able to say they are with me. <coughs> Second, the principles which the Church proposes in the public forum are for the flourishing of human persons in this life and their welfare also in the next. The Church encourages the State to build the best possible environment and conditions for the living of one's life with others in the community. Third, the Church is at the service of the common good, which is never at the expense of the human person. So the principles which she puts forth are ordered to the proper advancement of all people of whatever religious persuasion or none. It is good to encourage others to see the profound goodness that the teachings of the Church have to offer the world. And this means you. Being part of the Church means that we are part of the human family and its institutions, including the State. You and I alike have the same responsibility and the privilege of informing our elected representatives, perhaps in the light of natural reason, of the things that really matter in public debate. The light of the Gospel need not be known as such in order to illumine the minds of those who work for the state. Our leaders are still capable of getting it, even if they subscribe to another belief or none at all. What we have to offer are principles which are for the flourishing of individual persons now and for also the common good. This is welcome news. So I remind you all to let your politicians know what you think, what we think, by patiently and prudently offering them advice on the best course of action and letting them know our position, building an argument founded on natural reason. Talk and engage others who do not share our positions and charitably encourage them to see the deep goodness in these Catholic principles.
The church cannot become, nor be left to become, a safe haven for the like-minded, a ghetto, if you like, which is entirely removed from the mainstream of society. She must stand forth and be the light on the hill which cannot be hidden, and she requires her members to contribute, therefore. Allow me to finish with some final words from Pope Benedict. The Church must exert itself with all its vigour, so that in it there may shine forth the moral truth that it offers to the State, and that ought to become evident to the citizens of the State. This truth must be vigorous within the Church, and it must form men, for only then it will have the power to convince others, and to be a force working like leaven for all of society. been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Paul Rouse on the topic, Should the Church Challenge Caesar? For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.